Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 5. We're going to read, uh, begin by reading from Matthew 10, verses 5 through uh, 25. You'll find Matthew towards the second half of the Bible. Of course, it's the first book in the New Testament. But uh, Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 5. Uh, You can follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. These twelve, the twelve he just named up above in the verses prior, these twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the last lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandal or a staff for the worker. Staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Robert George has taught at Princeton University for about 35 years. And uh, he is a, a... relatively well-known public intellectual. He writes and speaks and argues a lot uh, in defense of the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of human sexuality. He's a faithful Roman Catholic, but we Baptists partner with him in his public advocacy work. Um, He talks to his students when he's teaching his classes. He talks to them about what it's like to advocate for ideas that push against the mainstream. What is it like to be the spokesman for unpopular ideas? 
And to get them thinking about this, he asks them to imagine that they are in Georgia in 1852. Uh, you're a member of a citizen of the state of Georgia, and it's 1852. And the question he asks them is, what are you going to do about slavery? And without question, the students in his class always say, well, I would oppose it. 100% I would oppose it because that slavery is evil, it's immoral. I would try to uh, pass abolition laws and I would write articles and books and I would talk about it to everybody I knew. This, we've got to get rid of this terrible evil. And he presses them a little bit about that. Are you sure? You live in Georgia in 1852. Are you sure? Don't you know how deeply entrenched slavery is in uh, the economy? How crucial it is? How deeply entrenched it is in the practices? It's defended in the pulpits. It's practiced by the influential. It's, if you ask most people about slavery, they will tell you that it's just part of nature, that this is the way it's supposed to be. Everyone either assumes that it is right or at minimum at least necessary. Are you sure that you want to invite all the scorn and derision that's going to come to your life by opposing slavery in Georgia in 1852? Your family's going to be ashamed of you. They're going to make up things about you and print them in the newspaper. You're not going to get invited anywhere. No one is going to want one of their children to marry you. Are you sure? They say, yes, absolutely. And then he says, all right. What position do you hold now in 2020 that is equally contrary and equally unpopular? And what are you doing about it? This is a college campus. It's in the Northeast. It's an Ivy League school. And immediately some of the students say, well, I, I advocate for climate change. And I support the Black Lives Matter movement. And I, I believe in transgender rights. And, and he says, do you know where we are? That's not hard to do here. You get applauded for having those opinions here. You, you don't get scorn and derision. What position do you hold, do you really hold, that's going to cost you now? I think about uh, Professor George and his question as I take up Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 25, because Jesus is about to send out his disciples into the world, and it is going to be a difficult mission. Uh, He's sending them out, he knows, he's sending them out as sheep among wolves, he's sending them into dangerous territory, and he is sending them without defenses. I read this and I think to myself, why in the world would you go? Why would the world would you accept this mission and say, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Hatred, flogging, abuse, that sounds, I, I'm in for that. Who would do that? Who would sign up for that? It's not like... Jesus is recruiting for the army and the invaders are on the next ridge. Jesus is not handing out shotguns and saying, go, go, go. That's not what's happening. And it's not like Jesus is saying, listen, there's a little exploration trip we're going to go on. It'll take five years. We'll only come back. We'll all be fabulously wealthy and everybody will want to talk to you. Who's in? He's not doing that. He is sending them out on a life that will be full of suffering. Who would do that? That's my question. That's the question I have as I read this passage, even though I have to admit that I don't think that that's Matthew's number one priority in this uh, chapter as he recorded this message from Jesus. Let me just for a couple minutes uh, get after what Matthew is trying to do. Uh, think about Matthew's strategy for just a minute. 
Um, you know how Matthew works. So there's the introduction with the genealogy of Jesus and his birth and his baptism. And then there's a conclusion of Jesus telling, uh, conclusion of Matthew telling us about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And in between those two points, Matthew organizes material around five sermons. He records five lengthy sermons from the Lord Jesus. And in between those sermons, there are miracle stories or short conversations that Jesus has that often reflect back on the themes of the sermon. So we've talked already about the Sermon on the Mount. Here we have the Sermon on Mission. And then we get to chapter 13, we'll have the next, the third of five sermons. This is the Sermon on Mission in chapter 10. And there's a debate that some scholars have about this. They wonder, is this one sermon that Jesus preached or has Matthew taken two sermons and put it together into one chapter? That summaries anyway. I'm sure Jesus' original instructions to the disciples were longer than this. Did he put two sermon summaries together? The reason they ask that question is because there seems to be a change a little bit in theme or content from verses 5 to 15, then through 16 through the end. For, for example, in verses 5 and 15, he talks about, he says to them, don't go to the Gentiles, just stay here in Israel, stay here in Galilee and preach. And he talks about the dangers they're going to face, but the dangers he talks about up to verse 15 are about not being welcomed somewhere. That's easy in comparison to the dangers following in verse 16 and following. Arrest, hatred, flogging, putting to death. Stakes are getting a lot higher here. And he also in verse uh, 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 17, sorry, verse 18 talks about ministry to the Gentiles. So there's a, a change of audience and a change of a danger. So some people wonder, well, either, either Jesus is preparing them advance, in advance for what they're going to experience after the resurrection, or Matthew seems to have knit together two messages with the same theme, and the theme is mission. Uh, Biographers do this all the time. They organize their material around themes, and that seems to be what Matthew may have done here. What surprises me as I read this too is that Matthew seems much more interested in the instructions about the mission than the mission itself. He sends out the 12 disciples, Jesus does, and Matthew doesn't tell us anything about what happened to them and what they did. Peter and Andrew, missions team, where did Peter and Andrew go after Jesus sent them out on this short-term missions trip? Where did they go? Did they actually shake the dust off their feet? Did they have to do that in any town? Did they raise the dead? Really, did they raise the dead? Anybody? Any, anybody from the dead? And what was, what was the person's name? And how did the town respond when you did that? I mean, it happened. There were six ministry teams that, that Jesus sent out. And Matthew doesn't give us one bit of information about what they experienced, but he, he, he devotes all this time to Jesus' instructions. Central to his instructions is that representing Jesus in the world means suffering. He tells the disciples that, and through the disciples he tells us, if we're going to represent Jesus faithfully in the world, it will be, involve suffering. Be prepared. Do you know how to survive? We're going to spend three weeks, uh, Lord willing, talking about this sermon on the mission. And this morning, I want to ask and answer three questions. First, we're going to talk about what sort of people Jesus sends. What sort of people does he send? Um, 
I know that's not Matthew's primary concern, but it's on the edges, and I want to point it out to you. I want to point this out to you because Jesus and Matthew, Matthew does not have two different types of Christians in mind here, the regular ones and the sent ones. He's got all of us in mind, and what characterizes us as we go on this mission? Secondly, what does Jesus send his people to do? What does he send us to do on this mission? We'll spend a little bit of time there. And then third, which is actually Matthew's priority, how do the people of Jesus endure on this mission that, that Matthew, uh, that Jesus sends us on? Uh, what, how do we endure the suffering that is involved? Well, let's take them one at a time. Let's start with the first question, shall we? What sort of people does Jesus send? And I want to show you from the text two things. Jesus sends people who first here who are loyal to him. People who are loyal to him. People who treasure him more than a comfortable life. If, if Jesus is going to send us on a difficult mission that involves suffering, we better love him more than we love comfort, more than we love ease. Look at verse 18 and, and verses 22. Uh, this, uh, how he uh, brings this about. Verse 18. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings. Your translation might say, for my name's sake, you will be brought before governors and kings. And then verse 22. You will be hated by everyone because of me. You will be hated by everyone because of me. I read that verse and I think to myself, what, what, what is it about Jesus that is going to cause people to hate us? People love Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. Jesus is a hero of, of everybody. Why, why would we, we be hated because of Jesus? He's mentioned governors and kings. I think that might help us a little bit as we, we think about that question. Governments, governments over time tend to demand more and more of your devotion. Power like a hot air balloon rises and must constantly be pushed down, and governments over time constantly de demand from their citizens more loyalty, more obedience, more submission. It, it just, just happens. It's the nature of you, you elect or appoint someone to an office, and uh, it goes to their head. Just more and more power, uh, more and more loyalty. In the name of the strength of our nation, in the name of the stability of our nation, in the name of the safety of our nation, you must show us more and more loyalty. And here comes Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He demands our highest loyalty. Jesus is a threat to the claim of anyone who would claim your loyalty. Matthew wrote his whole book about this. This is the point of the Gospel of Matthew. You should love him more than your country, than your comfort, than your life itself. Matthew introduces us to Jesus and we say, well, no one talks about God like Jesus does. No one has compassion on lost sheep like Jesus does. No one has authority over death and demons and nature like Jesus does. Jesus is worthy of my highest authority. Jesus is worth suffering for. He is more worthy of my attention than my nation, my ethnic identity, my alma mater, my state, my company, even my family. Verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and father his child. 
Here he talks about these closest of human relationships and Jesus demands loyalty to him over even these close personal relationships. Samuel James is a young author and observer. I, I, I've read some of his articles and some of the things he writes. He's, he's helpful in observing the church and how the church in the United States is functioning. He said uh, recently, the last four years have been very difficult in the United States, a great challenge to unity and the church in the United States. And that's true. We followers of Jesus have been we're trying to think about our public theology. What does the Bible teach about justice? What does the Bible teach about race relationships? And there has been a lot of conflict in the church of Jesus Christ in the United States over this. He said, though, as difficult as the last four years have been, what I fear most is what's going to happen next, the COVID-19 vaccine wars, dividing followers of Jesus. Let's put all the things that we have been disagreeing about over the last four years, we followers of Jesus in this nation, let's put them all together. The election, uh, race relations, COVID-19, policing in America, let's put them all together and recognize Jesus demands your loyalty more than your loyalty to your, any of your opinions about any of those things. If you can't worship with believers who hold different opinions in these matters, then Jesus isn't first in your heart. Do you love Jesus enough to be hated by everyone because of him? People who are loyal to him, that's who Jesus sends. He also sends recipients of his grace, recipients of his grace. I want to think about verse 8, the ending of verse 8, this phrase that most of you know. Jesus says here, verse 8, freely you have received, freely give. And then in verse 9, he elaborates on this. Don't get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag, no extra shirt or sandals or staff. Don't make preparations to go. Don't make provisions for yourself. You're to depend on God's provisions and how he's going to provide for you. It says, the worker is worth his keep. Now, this would be a perfect time, if I was going to, to spend time from the scriptures talking about the biblical practice of paying pastors. That would be self-interested, wouldn't it? Uh, uh, Paul, in 1 Timothy, Paul writes about paying pastors and missionaries and evangelists. He talks about that in 1 Timothy, and he quotes from this passage of scripture, actually the parallel in Luke. Uh, Paul quotes from Luke, who wrote these same instructions down in his gospel. Paying pastors and missionaries and evangelists. Except Jesus wants us to think here not so much in terms of salary. The IRS thinks in terms of salary. The church of Jesus doesn't think in terms of salary because he says ministry is freely given. It's freely given. I teach. Pastor Scott teaches. We counsel. We visit. We lead for free because we have received freely and the church in its generosity meets our needs. But in, in, in strictest, the strictest sense of Matthew chapter 10, I don't get paid a salary. I do what I do for free, and God's generous people meet every need that I have. We're not going to talk about that that much. What I want you to think about in this passage is the connection that, that Matthew draws, that Jesus draws here between grace, receiving grace freely from God, and greed. Grace severs the root of greed. 
you know that the average American uh, watches 30 hours of television every week, which is 65 days of nonstop TV watching every year, two months watching television. Uh, the average high school graduate has watched 360,000 commercials, and the average 65-year-old in the United States has watched 2 million commercials. Uh, that's a lot of commercials. That's a lot of promises from products. If you buy this, if you subscribe to this, if you invest in this, if you vote for this person, you will be happy. It will satisfy you. Freely receiving God's grace enables us to see through those lies. There was uh, somebody who took um, uh, the commercials that they had watched and rewrote them as Beatitudes. We studied the Beatitudes a few weeks ago, months ago. Uh, listen. Blessed are those who fly to luxury vacation spots on tropical islands where they lie in lounge chairs, the only two people on an enormous white beach, for they shall be satisfied seen that commercial. Blessed are those who drink much beer, for they shall be surrounded by carefree football-watching buddies and highly attractive, young, socially gifted women, and they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have the latest smartphone, for they shall gaze on a screen swirling with color and shall get all the information they need just when they need it, and they shall be satisfied. I don't like to vacation very much at the beach. And beer doesn't hold much attraction to me, but those cell phones look so good. I mean, I know mine's only three months old, but that one would really make me happy. Right? Grace in full flower severs that connection between my satisfaction and things. He sends them out. You're not going out on this mission for things. You have received grace freely from God, and God's grace sets you free from trying to be satisfied with those things. Freely receiving God's grace makes you a generous person. You have found something else to satisfy you, other than the things that other people are looking to be satisfied with. Uh, last night I was reading from Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, You have lost your possessions You've, you've seen your houses looted for Christ's sake, but you didn't mind letting them go because you have a greater possession in Jesus Christ. Free, freely receiving God's grace severs the root of greed. Of course, at the center of what we received, have received from God freely, is forgiveness. Naturally, we human beings... Well, because God has made us, we owe him an obligation. We are obliged to our creator God to obey him, to follow him, to submit ourselves to him. But we naturally, we human beings, are in a state of rebellion against him. There's something instinctive about you that you know this. So let's imagine that you walk on the field for the first time in the uh, late summer for the first practice of the season. And the coach says, all right, players, run around the field six times. Let's go. First practice. Let's, we got to get in shape and make sure we're ready. Go ahead. Warm up six times around the field. If you look at your coach at that point in time and you say, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? He says, she says, I'm the coach. And if you want to be on the field, you'll run around it. Otherwise, you're off the team. 
We human beings have said to God, that makes sense. We know that. It makes sense. We have said to God, though, who do you think you are to tell us what to do and to demand how we live our lives? And God says, if you want to be alive, you will listen to me. Otherwise, you're dead meat. God does not say it that way. Scripture tells us, though, it's the wages of our rebellion against God. Jesus came, though, to die for us in our place on the cross. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose again, and he gives life and forgiveness to all who will receive it by faith. And it is a free gift. A free gift to all who will believe forgiveness and life in Jesus. You have received that grace freely. And now you can freely give. This is a description of those that Jesus sends. This is not unusual. This is not super Christianity here. This is for all of us sent into this world to represent him. There are high standards, but notice, notice actually in this passage how Jesus sends them out. This might be helpful for us as we think about these high standards. He sends them out in pairs, two by two. Peter and Andrew, James and John. Philip and Bartholomew, I'm reading from Matthew 10, 3. Thomas and Matthew, James and Thaddeus, and they got in pairs. Why do they go out in pairs? Because Jesus is sending them to do something that's hard, that is full of suffering, that's difficult, and they're going to need the encouragement. If you are going to be someone who represents the Lord Jesus well, you are going to need the help and encouragement of someone else. Just picture it. James and John are out there together. They're brothers. They're laying up somewhere at night in somebody's house. And James starts thinking about his mother's apple pie. Well, it's Israel. It wouldn't be apple pie. Fig pudding. James starts thinking about his mother's fig pudding and how, how good it is and how I would just wish we could go home and we weren't out stuck here in this strange place in this hard bed. John... You need to help James at that moment. You need to remind him why we're here. James is getting discouraged. You need to help him. <laughs> Both of you boys, you've got temper problems, and you've got to help one another <laughs> with your temper. You've got to help each other. Followers of Jesus help other followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Who's partnering with you? Who's partnering with you in, in following Jesus? Who's helping you? And who are you helping follow Jesus? This is the type of people that Jesus sends. And he sent us out together. Now, second question that I want to get to in this text. Whoops, I don't know what happened. Something just happened. It was amazing. <laughs> it wasn't amazing. Um, well, okay. Oh, look at that. Somebody's going to, oh, never mind. Well, we'll keep going. What does Jesus send his people to do? He sends his people to represent him, to represent him. That's my shorthand, that's my contextualization of uh, what Jesus uh, sent us to do. The specific instructions are in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's so short. Certainly their sermons are going to be longer than that. Uh, uh, 
it's interesting. Jesus doesn't talk about um, the message in specific in this passage because Matthew's going to come back to the kingdom later. He's going to talk about that later. When we get to chapter 13, there'll be the Sermon on Mystery. This is great. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on Mission, then Sermon on Mystery. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to keep that alliteration up forever. When we get to sermon number four, it'll probably start with Q or something like that. But anyway, we'll get to the kingdom more when we get to it later. Uh, but um, here is go and proclaim the kingdom and heal. The kingdom is near because, because Jesus is the king and he has come. Uh, and the validation of the new age that God has broken in is these miracles. You're going to heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse those who have leprosy. Here's the good news. I have good news. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. God has broken into the world. Here's the good news. And you must turn to him. Your response to him is determinative of your eternal destiny. Verse 15. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town who refuses to listen. There's a town, there's a house that turns from Jesus and will not listen about him. There is eternal judgment to come, and it's going to be worse for you than for Sodom and Gomorrah. There's probably a better way to say this. It's a crude way to say this, but hell is going to be hot. There are extra hot sections for those who hear about Jesus and refuse to listen to him. This is why we as a church have such a great concern for our own children and our own teenagers that the Lord entrusts into our hands. They come and they sit and they hear in youth group and they hear this pulpit and they hear in Sunday school over and over and over again. They hear about the Lord Jesus. If they walk away, if they walk away, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those who hear the gospel over and over and over again and walk away. This is good news that we have. We have good news of forgiveness and life from Jesus, through Jesus. If you will not have it, though, there is nothing but an expectation of terrible judgment. Some people will be glad to receive this message. There will be people who will be anxious to hear it. Verse 11 and 12 and 13, verses 11, 12 and 13 talk about this. You'll enter a town, find a worthy person. He says, Jesus is being strategic. Find a worthy person. That is, find someone who's interested in hearing and go and stay at their house and bring them peace because you are a messenger of peace in Jesus' name. Bring peace. And he's got this weird, it's not weird, it's just unexpected. Stay at their house until you leave. Don't bounce around from houses in a particular town. Why? I think, again, he's after this greed component. Don't go to someone's house and then find out that someone across town has cable and move over there. Okay, don't do that. Stay where you are and preach to that town. So there will be people who will be glad to receive it. Friends, you have people in your neighborhood in your class at school, you have friends who work with you who are looking for the peace that Jesus brings. There are people who won't like it. Maybe a majority of people who won't like it. But there are people who are anxious to hear. Tell them. 
represent the Lord Jesus to them? Now let's answer the third question. Ask and answer the third question. How do the people of Jesus endure? How do the people of Jesus endure? Again, this mission is going to involve suffering. It's going to demand loyalty. Um, it, it involves suffering because people don't want to hear about grace. They don't think they need grace, or they think grace sounds too easy, so they don't like that message. You're going to have to love him more than your own reputation and your own comfort. Jesus thinks about endurance. I know he's thinking about endurance because in verse 22, he says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. There, here's the gift that suffering brings. Here's the gift of the suffering of representing Jesus brings. It brings, um, it, it shows you that your faith is real. When you suffer for Jesus' sake and, and you uh, um, remain loyal to him in the midst of suffering, when it costs you something, it shows you that your faith is real. You do love him more than your comfort. This is what testing does. But Jesus gets specific here. How do the people of Jesus endure? Uh, he says, be shrewd and innocent at the same time. Be shrewd and innocent at the same time. Look at verse 16. It's an animal verse. If you like animals, verse 16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Then he says, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Snakes in this culture, Jesus is speaking about them. We, have in our, we, we assign characteristics to animals in our culture, right? Owls are wise. We just think they're uh, wise. And if you see an owl, it's a wise creature. Well, in Jesus' day, if you see a snake, there is a shrewd creature, a uh, crafty, plotting, uh, uh, thoughtful creature. Doves, on the other hand, are gentle. They're harmless. Jesus says, make wise, crafty plans, the end of which is to bless people. <laughs> I'm going to be really smart about how I'm going to bring you this really good news that's going to change your life. Be shrewd and innocent. Our problem is that we're, uh, we get this opposite, uh, backwards, our temptation. We're as tempted to be as kind as snakes and as shrewd as doves. That is... We are mean and naive at the same time. That's the great temptation. I think the shrewdness is evident in some of the things that he says. So in verse 14, he says, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Leave. You don't have to stay there. Be shrewd about this, Jesus says. What does he mean by shaking the dust off your feet? So if you go into a town and they will not listen to you, that town, verse 15, we talked about this already, is liable for judgment from God. So leave, and when you go, because that town is under judgment from God for rejecting Jesus, don't take anything with you. Make sure, don't buy souvenirs in that town. Don't, uh, in fact, dust the, the, take the dust off your shoes. You don't even want dirt from that town because they're liable to judgment because they rejected Jesus. But the point is, move on. Move on. There, there are other people who are anxious to hear, so be shrewd and move on to, to those anxious people who want to hear. Verse 23, he says, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Uh, be shrewd about this. I, I have to confess, this, um, 
this is, uh, I'm not sure exactly how to apply this, and it probably uh, it would take a, a long time and, and careful thought to figure this out. But Jesus is saying there will be situations and places that you will go where people will not be anxious to hear. In fact, they will persecute you. You need not stay there. There are other places you can go and share the gospel. Now, I say it takes thought because some of us in this room are too quick to leave. Well, I mentioned Jesus' name, and they didn't like it, so I'm going to stop. And some of us are too stubborn to leave. Adoniram Judson was in Burma for eight years before someone became a follower of Jesus. I wonder if anybody ever wrote Adoniram Judson and said, hey, you know, remember Jesus, he said, if they, people don't leave, you should, if people don't listen, you should leave. I wonder if he ever thought about that and how he would have responded. Uh, this de demands a lot of thought. Shrewdness demands thought and consultation and care. But Jesus is saying, don't be a martyr. Followers of Jesus have been martyrs many, many times. Don't be a martyr if you don't have to be. Flee persecution. And, he says at the same time, don't be a wimp either. Uh, shrewd and innocent. Then Jesus says, don't be afraid either. Don't be afraid. We're going to talk about this more next week when we get to verse 26. But he says in verse 19, sometimes you will be arrested and you won't be prepared and you'll have to give a defense of me and you'll be worried that you hadn't prepared. You prepare for your other teaching and preaching opportunities, but you haven't prepared for this. Uh, don't be afraid. The Holy Spirit will help you at that moment know what to say. Don't be afraid. Uh, the Spirit of your Father will be with you. Jesus says, go. He sends us on a mission. It's going to require shrewdness. It's going to involve suffering. It's going to bring peace. It's going to be so hard that you're going to need to partner with someone else to do this. In 2003, Hurricane Isabel struck the city of Washington, D.C. And uh, they knew it was coming. They knew it was going to be bad. And the, the city emptied out. People fled. Congress left. The federal government offices were closed. People hunkered down. They got out of town. Uh, except there was a group of people who stayed. Uh, they had a specific job to do across the Potomac River in the city, uh, in the state of Virginia, specifically in Arlington National Cemetery. Some of you have been to Arlington and you know about the tomb of the unknown soldier, actually the tombs of the unknown soldiers. Those tombs have been guarded continuously, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, since 1930. And the soldiers who guard the tombs of the unknown were told that they could leave, that they didn't have to stay. If they, if they wanted to get out because of Hurricane Isabel, they, they could go. And uh, the vast majority of them declined the opportunity to leave. One soldier in particular stood guard over the tombs of the unknown, walking back and forth in front of them for five and a half hours through the worst of the storm, 60 mile per hour wind gusts, 24 trees in Arlington National Cemetery, 24 mature trees were blown over by the hurricane. They fell and crushed three headstones, and this guy is walking back and forth over these tombs, guarding them. Out of reverence for the job, out of reverence for the people that it represented, because he's part of a team that has volunteered and signed up to do this. We followers of Jesus were part of a team that has been representing him in the world since A.D. 33. 
Many of our brothers and sisters have represented Jesus at the cost of their own blood and at the cost of their own lives. Jesus told us this is the way it would be. Who signs up for that? Who goes into that? Who volunteers for that? Those who know the Lord Jesus. Those who love the Lord Jesus. Those who belong to his people. That's who we are. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are grateful to you for this admonition from the Lord Jesus about representing him in the world. Lord, we confess to you that we are often weak and intimidated. We lack the courage that is necessary. So we come before you and we ask you that according to your kindness, you would grant us by your spirit stiff spines to represent you well in the world. Father, it is easy for me to think of times that I have failed to represent you well. And, and I, I imagine I'm not alone in that in this room. So we come before you again asking you for help. We are sheep. We live in a wolvish world. So I do pray, I ask you that you would, would help us that you would help us to encourage one another, fellow believers at, at the office or in our classes or in our neighborhoods, that we would faithfully represent the Lord Jesus, bringing the peace, the good news that he gave to us, that he died to procure. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.